0: Hello listeners, welcome to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. I'm Daniel Ennis, today's host, and I'm joined today by Drs. Barry Casson, Stefan Voyer, and Steph Saad, who's the current chief resident. And today we're talking about a patient that I saw during my first stint as junior attending for rheumatology at Vancouver General. So here's some background history on our patient. This is a gentleman, a Caucasian gentleman in his mid to late twenties. He has no relevant past medical history, no allergies. He's not on any medications, no habits, no non smoker, no significant alcohol use and no uh, recent travel or occupational exposures. He doesn't have anything relevant in his family history, like malignancy or early heart disease or any hereditary conditions. So. He initially presented to hospital with over one month of progressive weight loss, low-grade fevers, abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, and nocturnal bowel symptoms. In the emergency department, he was noted to be a bit pale, but he was otherwise in no acute distress. His vital signs were all stable, and he was afebrile. He did have some generalized abdominal tenderness, but no organomegaly, and otherwise the exam was negative. So, Steph, do you mind running through quickly what your differential is at this point, given the demographic features and that presenting syndrome?
1: Oh, you're putting him right on the spot. I like it. Is that, that's new. I love it.
2: Right into it. Uh, So I think it's quite, obviously, there's still a lot of possible things here. But we have a gentleman that's in his mid-20s who's previously healthy with no obvious risk factors uh, that you gave us a pretty good negative list there who's coming in with sounds like significant symptoms in terms of abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, and weight loss. So definitely I would think about a systemic issue that's leading to this, whether it's something like inflammatory bowel disease would be on the differential, whether there's a systemic infection that may cause that. Uh, Of course that would be a more subacute cause. And then being skewed because you're coming on a rheumatology service seeing this patient, then you're also thinking about, with that abdominal pain, maybe some mesenteric ischemia or vasculitis causing that. Um, But there's a really broad differential here. I'm I'm kind of curious how much weight loss over what time period Um, and a bit more information about that bloody diarrhea to
0: quantify that and to get more information there. Those are are great questions that I don't have the answers to. (laughs) Um, So right now, though, the first thing on your differential is... Inflammatory bowel disease may be some sort of infection, and uh, because I told you I was on rheumatology, it may be some rheumatologic something. Okay, so we'll move on from there. So here are the initial investigations. He does have a microcytic anemia. He has a mild thrombocytosis. He has an elevated CRP that's somewhere in the 50s, and he gets a CT abdo pelvis while he's in the emergency department, and that actually shows no specific evidence of colitis the there was some apparent rectal wall uh, thickening um but when but essentially they they felt that that actually could have been secondary to the collapsed state of the bowel they also note that there's some non specific bilateral sacroiliitis and they wonder if this is related to ibd so they call rheumatology um to come see him for the sacroiliitis do you think that this is a relevant feature of the case
3: Yeah, I, I think that, uh, that's a really good question. I think the finding of sacroiliitis I think is, uh, by itself, um, suggests an underlying inflammatory disease, a seronegative disease, um, or an infection and usually infection isn't bilateral. So I think it is reasonable, maybe not explaining any of his symptoms presently, but maybe explaining some other aspect of his health that we're not aware of.
0: Danny, did he have any symptoms to go along with that finding? No. So, so he was actually, everyone was actually really surprised by that. He has no symptoms in the low back at all.
1: And were there any physical exam findings to support sacroiliitis?
0: Um, so I will bring you to those exam findings shortly. So GI gets in there before rheumatology does, and GI performs a colonoscopy. So the pathology from that comes back and it's a biopsy of the colonic mucosal, sorry, the colonic mucosa from the hepatic flexure. And it shows active chronic colitis, moderate chronic inflammation with mild to moderate architectural distortion. The morphology was felt to be compatible with either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So Steph, you were, you know, your number one was uh, exactly what the team felt. And they note that there's no granulomas, dysplasia or CMV and the blood cultures that were sent when he was in the emergency department ultimately come back negative. So rheumatology is involved because of the imaging finding of sacroiliitis. And on exam, he actually has full range of motion. He has no evidence of enthesitis, dactylitis, arthritis, bursitis. He has no low back pain or tenderness. He has no morning stiffness. He has no history concerning for iritis or uveitis. And and, and he doesn't use NSAIDs with any regularity. So on that basis, should we care about the presence of the sacroiliitis?
2: I think one thing that's interesting is that you told us he got a CT abdo and that picked up the sacroiliitis. Obviously, that's not dedicated imaging for that. So to me, that's interesting, and in whether we need more definitive imaging to look at that some more.
0: So let's say let's say we do. I, that's actually a, a really fantastic point, and we'll come back to why that's so crucial. But. Would it? What would it matter? So, if you did better imaging and said, "Like, yeah, like we can see more clearly the sacroiliitis that we saw before," but he's asymptomatic, so are you going to change any aspect of your care on the basis of that finding?
3: So, I think you will. And uh, so, the MRI is more sensitive um, to active sacroiliitis uh, and show bone marrow edema. So, that would be helpful, I think, to to image the his. his SI joints with an MRI. I think you have an explanation possibly in that he could have, I mean, his inflammatory bowel disease and his sacroiliitis could certainly be part of the same syndrome.
0: Yeah. So I think that we need some more information on the relationship between IBD and sacroiliitis. So in the the same month that he's admitted, an excellent article is actually published in Arthritis Care and Research that actually helps us answer this question. And the author of that article was John Chan, who's a staff rheumatologist at Vancouver General Hospital, who was actually not on service at that time. And it's a collaboration with um, some of his previous research supervisors in Toronto, Nigel Haroon and Robert Inman, who are both major contributors in spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis research. So what they did is they looked at CT scans from 316 patients with IBD from the Mount Sinai registry, of which three quarters were Crohn's disease. And they compared them to 108 control patients. Now, all of these patients had had CT scans for non-back pain-related indications. So the IBD patients had them for abdominal indications, which Steph is what you were getting at, and the 108 controls, they were actually getting CTs for genital urinary issues. And what they found in this group is that the controls actually had a rate of sacroiliitis of 5.5%, and that was compared to the IBD group, which had a rate of about 15%. So that represented a threefold higher prevalence of the sacroiliitis if you had IBD compared to not. What's interesting here is that the actual general population rate of sacroiliitis is typically 1% to 2%, and true ankylosing spondylitis is about 0.9%. So the rates in this study in the control group were actually a bit higher than they expected. And when they went and called those patients... Two of them actually sounded like they may meet criteria for angst bond. So that might have been just accidentally picked up in this study. But the point of this study was that the rates are actually quite high uh, in this in this group. And there are some other studies that look at this too. So in X-ray studies it's up to 25%. In other CT studies, it's up to 45%. And in an MRI study, which is what you're alluding to, Dr. Kassin, the rates were up to 39%. But the but the question is, of those with sacroiliitis, how many of them are actually symptomatic? And that may be somewhere around 3%. So actually, a relatively there's more people who you're going to pick up who have asymptomatic sacroiliitis than actually have symptoms. And then you might wonder about the HLA prevalence in this group. So in some of these studies, uh, HLA-B27 prevalence was increased only in those patients with IBD who also had true ankylosing spondylitis, but not necessarily in those who just had the isolated sacroiliitis. And our patient turned out to be HLA-B27 negative. So with that information, just recognizing that the prevalence of that finding is actually high, and there have been some other studies, I believe that John Chen was also involved in, that actually showed that um, a lot of CT scans for abdominal imaging never even comment on the sacroiliitis that's there, despite its prevalence. What do you guys want to do to manage him?
1: Doesn't it feel like we should just be managing the IBD and maybe do nothing for the imaging finding right now?
0: So that's exactly what everyone decided. Rheumatology came by, they examined him, they said, you actually look really good. Uh, you never need to see us again unless you have a problem. The IBD team that was taking care of him actually felt that mesalazine was a good option to start him on and see how he went from there. Relatively speaking, his Crohn's disease or or IBD was relatively moderate, mild to moderate. So they felt they could get away with Mesalazine as the maintenance agent.
3: So I, I still think, though, the, the issue that we have to decide is, do we think that this is a related phenomena, in which case treating the IBD might be all we need to do? Do we think that this is two separate phenomena, uh, or, or do we think that, and if it's two separate phenomena, is there activity other than clinical symptoms uh, from a sacroiliac uh, disease?
0: Yeah, what's your sense of that in this case?
3: So in this case, I th- I think that, and I may be incorrect, but I think I would go on to further try to characterize the nature of the sacroiliitis to see if there's a lot of, as I mentioned, bone marrow edema. If there is, that would suggest to me that there is activity, um, and maybe at this point, uh, treating his IBD would all all I would do, but I'd be more active rather than passive. Rheumatology's recommendation you said was. If you have problems, come and see us again, and I might be more active in the surveillance.
1: Yeah, I, I would not be. I, I, I would leave it alone until the patient comes in with symptoms.
3: Yeah, I,
0: I guess that you. I, it sounds like you're both right. Uh, it kind of depends on the type of patient that you're dealing with. If it's someone who you feel would get back in touch, then it, I, I think you can reasonably follow them from a distance or, or let them come back when they're ready. Uh, and if it seems like someone who may require a bit more observation, um, then you could book follow up with them. I think either way, everyone is saying that it probably doesn't change your immediate management of this guy. So he actually does really well in hospital. Um, he's eventually discharged home. He's in good condition. So he makes it about two to four weeks, but then returns to hospital with two days of retrosternal chest pain, fever, night sweats, and some dyspnea. But his IBD by this point is actually under excellent control. And in the emergency department, he has a T max of 40 and a heart rate between 90 and 140.
3: What's his blood pressure?
0: His blood pressure is, is, uh, appears to be within normal limits.
3: And his diastolic pressure is normal?
0: Yes. What are you, what are you, uh, angling at there?
3: Well, I'm, I'm angling, ankling, if you will, at the possibility of aortic insufficiency, secondary to his, Potential of having uh, seronegative spondylitis.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually a not infrequent referral here at the vasculitis clinic. But no, his his diastolic actually looked like it, it was within normal range. Um, so no major no problems with his blood pressure. He had some initial investigations. He had a normal CBC and differential, normal LFTs, albumin, lipase, bilirubin. His CRP was elevated at 130. And his trope was elevated at 0.5, where the normal range was less than 0.05. His LDH was also a bit elevated at 3.08. An HIV test done previously was negative. And in the emergency department, they're just watching him. And he goes from a trope of 0.5 to 3.8 to 5. And ECGs actually show progression to PR depression and subtle ST elevations diffusely. And on day two of his admission, he has a BNP that comes back elevated at 225. He has a normal C3 and 4, a negative ANA, a weakly positive ANCA, um, but it's equivocal on ELISA. And they check in for CMV, EBV, and Parvo, which all come back essentially negative. So what do you think is going on at this point? And is there any other imaging or investigations that you're looking for?
3: Sorry, did you say an echo was done or, or you didn't?
0: There was a bedside echo that was done that didn't show any obvious effusion.
2: So I... I think a formal echo would be definitely something I'd want. I think that would probably be my f- next investigation I'd want. Maybe based on that, he may need some kind of coronary imaging as well, but I think that's lower down on my differential. Uh, but if the echo shows something should, suggested that we should go
0: down that route, then a CCTA would be a consideration, but that would be maybe further down along. So what do you actually think is going on? Like, What do you think his diagnosis here, or, or how would you order your differential at this point?
2: I think I that ECG you gave us was maybe worrisome for pericarditis, so whether there's a pericarditis is, I guess, higher up on my differential. Uh, it seems like he's already a couple days into the admission, and some more life-threatening causes um, that, he, w- that I was thinking about when he first came in have been ruled out, but I guess that's also uh, maybe not the right assumption. We might be missing some information.
0: Doesn't it feel suspicious that, like, he was just here for this completely other diagnosis, and now he's coming back with just something else entirely
3: a completely different problem or not
0: yeah exactly I, that and that's what i'm wondering do you think that these things are connected cuz first we were saying is the ibd really connected to the sacroiliitis probably but now he's coming back with like a third even farther removed problem do you think that this is connected or do you think that this is a separate entity bad luck this guy's just having a tough year
1: You know, so I would say like, this is good for me because I'm about to learn something for sure in this case, like when the big reveal happens. So for me, you know, you and I, Danny, have talked many times about like Occam's razor versus Hickam's dictum, like, you know, do we need to find one unifying diagnosis? And I always operate on this basic assumption that the younger and otherwise healthier someone is, the more likely we are to find a signal, a single unifying diagnosis. So this guy, like a month ago, was healthy and is only in his 20s, which to me now in retrospect seems incredibly young. Uh, And he's got a new diagnosis of an uncommon condition. I genuinely right now have no idea what's causing his chest pain, fever and shortness of breath. So I feel like I'm about to learn about an association between something that happens in the chest and uh, and, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. To me, like, yeah, it's so... So myopericarditis crossed my mind, although that's not an association that I have. So that's a little worrisome. Maybe that's a thing that I'm about to learn. I, you know, he's now very like he's a little bit immunosuppressed. And so the possibility that he's picked up just pneumonia on the basis of being immunosuppressed, I think, is a possibility. But I, my own belief at this point is that we're going to find that this disorder, this new presentation, is linked to the IBD.
3: And chest pain in a young person that has has certainly a myocardial component uh, with the suggestion previously of a rheumatologic disorder needs to at least consider, although his age is a little bit great, for Kawasaki's. So are we seeing some problem... Uh, with his coronary arteries and is that accounting for his cor- for his fever and his chest pain although the findings on ECG would suggest pericarditis
1: and also like would you expect that kawasaki would have presented like that and have those biopsy results from the colonoscopy uh, i don't know i'd expect it to show ischemic lesions more than inflammatory lesions yeah i don't know
0: those are great questions. And Steph, I like uh, I like your instinct for when I'm about to teach you something. It makes me feel like maybe I have a bit of a Columbo, one last question sort of deal, where you can kind of tell when the the twist is coming. So you are about to learn something, but I'll give you some of the investigations first. So he has a CT chest, uh, kind of right when he comes into the hospital. And that shows trace bilateral pleural effusions, but they're relatively small. Um, and some mild lower lobe compressive atelectasis. He does get a proper transthoracic echo, and that doesn't show any effusion, but it shows a mild, uh, sorry, a mobile echo density attached to the cord of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve. And he gets a TEE later that day that confirms that there is, in fact, this echo density, and it's 15 by 4 millimeters. He has a cardiac MRI about a day or two later, and they, they push that ahead. And it shows increased LV volumes with preserved systolic function. There's actually no evidence of scar or inflammation in the myocardium. And there's no specific evidence of pericarditis. So there's no late enhancement or scarring or infiltrative cardiomyopathy that they pick up there. Does that like, does that adjust really for you guys what you think is going on here? It did that, was that, is that out of nowhere or what? Because I know when I heard this echo report, I thought I was probably looking at the wrong patient because that did not fit with what I was expecting.
3: Well, I don't think any of us are expecting any of these things. I would say that thinking of what, we've, what you've told us, morantic endocarditis from an unknown etiology is possible. This was off the, the cord eye. Where, where was the lesion?
0: Uh, it's on the cord of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve.
3: And, and you said it was mobile?
0: Yes, it was reported as mobile.
3: Obviously, any intracardiac lesion um, should include the differential, especially with fever of, of a myxoma. But none of these not would seem to present in exact this way. So I'm about to learn a whole lot of things.
1: And I would say, I would say, you know what? Speak for yourself, Barry. I was totally <laughs> expecting an abnormality on the echocardiogram. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think morantic endocarditis or or like an infection on the valve from a from a transient bacteremia related to the IBD, I think are possibilities. But again, when I think of endocarditis, I think of a painless yeah. problem. So, ugh, yeah, like this, I do not know what to do with this new finding.
0: And I know that I know the answer to this case, but but can I can I just like offer that I don't think that these findings adjust at all the initial syndrome of perimyocarditis. Like he has the ECG findings. He has a troponin rise that keeps going up. I, and, and I mean, the fact that the MR is negative so early in the course of his disease, I think the timing of that is relevant, but I actually still think that that is still very much the diagnosis. And this mobile echo density is odd. I don't know where to put that. Yes. Infection, myxoma, those are all things that we have to deal with, but I still think we have the other diagnosis that I feel is still firm. So he either has three cardiac things, pericarditis, myocarditis, and some kind of valve lesion, or this valve lesion is of no significance. But his clinical syndrome is related to the myocarditis, pericarditis. I would agree. Okay. Steph, you agree?
3: Yeah,
1: uh, two Stephs here, so it's very confusing. Uh, I would say, (laughs) yeah, um, I think so. Uh, There's something very unsettling. I I just... Yeah, I... Yeah, boy.
3: That's two steps forward, one step back.
1: Oh. (laughs) Okay, Barry, you're on, you're on timeout. I'm going to turn Barry's mic off for a little bit.
0: All right. So I think we need a bit of information on myocarditis and IBD. So could this be related to the disease? And the answer is yes. IBD can rarely Um, be associated with myocarditis or pericarditis. And in fact, there was a Danish nationwide cohort that spanned 16 years and it looked at 15,000 patients and they identified only six cases associated with IBD. And it had a slightly increased rate ratio compared to the background population, which gave an ultimate risk of myocarditis of 4.6 per 100,000 years of risk. It can occur as the initial manifestation or independent of the disease activity. And some cases have actually presented as fulminant myocarditis in association with active disease. So I haven't found any cases where it's fulminant myocarditis in the absence of systemic disease. So there's a number of case series on this. But the other question that actually when we were called and we were on our way down to go see this person, um, we wondered, is there any association not with the IBD, but with the treatment of the IBD? And it turns out that there are multiple case reports of mesalazine-induced myocarditis, pericarditis, or myopericarditis. And the most extensive review I could actually find on the topic was done by Dr. Glenn Brown, who's a clinical pharmacist in the St. Paul's ICU. So in addition to some other cases with other compounds, he also identified 43 cases where mesalazine was the implicated agent. And essentially, here's what's important. There's no pathognomonic lab test or echo finding that defines mesalazine myopericarditis from IBD-related. Most patients did present within 28 days of starting the mesalazine. Discontinuation of the medication can result in very rapid resolution, even without additional therapies. But in those who did receive therapy, about half of them actually use prednisone which I know is not our typical agent of choice for pericarditis. Re-challenging with 5-ASA has actually been reported to cause recurrence within hours. And in the end, he concludes that there's no clear diagnostic strategy to differentiate between the two causes, but there's enough suspicion to think that misalazine truly does have its own, that it truly can cause myopericarditis or pericarditis. So I'm going to bring you back to the case with that new information. Cardiology spends forever thinking about all of the imaging that he's had, the cardiac MRI, the multiple echocardiograms. His blood cultures come back negative, and in fact, they ultimately think that the echo finding is more likely to represent a congenital mass than an infectious etiology or a myxoma. Room, Cardio, GI all agree that in the end, um, this is unlikely to be infective endocarditis, but... What would you do right away when you see him in the emergency department? What's going to be your management strategy?
2: And we're seeing, and, and you're saying that we're seeing them when they first come in, uh, and now we have this information. Yeah. I mean, I still think you're going to, if you're seeing them for the first time, you're not sure about the negative cultures that are going to come up afterward. This person going to get empirically treated for an infection, and then subsequently potential endocarditis once you find the that mass. Um, and then you're going to want to rule out life-threatening causes that brought them in with the chest
0: pain and the fever, um, which is, I'm guessing, why they got the CT chest to begin with. How are you going to manage yeah. the, the, the perimyocarditis component? Let's leave the potential endocarditis, which I, I've kind of skipped to the end result of those discussions. But when you see him in the first place, what are going to be your agents of choice?
2: I mean, our first line usually is going to be an said with colchicine, but... I'd have to think through that given, you know, yeah, it's not like IBD is a contraindication,
0: but certainly you might not tolerate it or do very well on that. That's a good point. And also I'd add to that, that I, you know, I've just told you that mesalazine can actually induce, potentially induce a, a myopericarditis. So would using a aspirin or an NSAID, which are essentially all in the same family, although maybe somewhat different targets, do they share the same risk? So, giving him aspirin, would that potentially worsen his symptoms? Would that be something that you guys might consider in the management here?
1: I'd look that up, but I've never heard of that. I think in this case, you know, given that he has another inflammatory condition that will, so let's say we're going to presume to stop his current immunosuppression. I think the easiest thing to do at this stage would be prednisone and colchicine. Probably that's what I would do. Like with, you know, with a bunch of reading, me and up to date would do prednisone and colchicine. Until date
0: told me otherwise. <laughs> I, and does the fact of a potential infective endocarditis adjust your likelihood of using prednisone? Or are you still happy to use it as long as he has proper antibiotics on board?
1: Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, if he's empirically covered, he's going to be monitored for a little bit. I think I could get my... I mean, at this point, like, I, I probably if I saw that echo report, I would start thinking, like, is this a red herring? Because particularly with negative blood cultures, why would this guy in particular have endocarditis? You know, what's his risk
0: factor? That is exactly what what everyone else was thinking. We all thought that is not why we were doing the echo. We were not specifically looking for endocarditis, but now we've found this weird lump on the, the cord. What does that even mean? And it wasn't even on the valve. It was just on the cord. So that was pretty odd. And I think everyone struggled with interpreting that in the context of his actual presentation. What would you say, uh, because I think this came up a lot on GIM, for patients with pericarditis based on the COPE trial and, and the ICAP trial using steroids in the context of pericarditis?
3: Well, I think that uh, that Steph was correct. I mean, first of all, I think what we didn't, I think what was inferred, but we didn't state explicitly is mesalazine would be stopped. Um, so that would be the first thing. And therefore, we're left with... A person who has inflammatory bowel disease, who has been controlled, um, but who has a chance of flaring, and now uh, pericardial, mild pericardial disease. So I don't think I'd use colchicine. I think I just use prednisone. And I wouldn't be anxious about his immunosuppression or the fact that we're hiding anything because he's going to be under surveillance. And I'm not certain that this would change things.
0: Great. Um, I, w- one of the things that I found interesting is that in, in the trials that looked at uh, recurrent pericarditis or first episode pericarditis, um, there seems to be this consistent signal that corticosteroid use is associated with, uh, recurrence. So in the COPE trial, it was an odds ratio of 4.3. Um, and it was also seen in, in other uh, systematic reviews. But I think what's important for, for me, um, in this case is that that wasn't really the population um, of those trials. So while the COPE trial may have included uh, patients with autoimmune disease, maybe it was 15% of patients, which totaled 10 in each of the groups, subsequent trials um, either excluded connective tissue disease patients or had really tiny groups of connective tissue disease patients, and even less were inflammatory bowel disease. So I don't know that I we could really apply the concern about like oh steroids increases the risk of recurrent pericarditis um I don't I don't really think that that is going to factor much into the decision on what agent I would use to treat. So right. so in this situation we actually the question that we were wondering about was first we stopped the uh, mesalazine cuz we wondered we could never prove it but we wondered if that was the causative agent here rather than his IBD. We thought endocarditis really did not fit his clinical picture, but we were going to treat him for it and wonder about it anyways. What we actually wondered was, because the case reports seem to show that you can actually just stop the misalazine and everything resolves on its own, could we do that here? Like, would we be comfortable doing that, given that his trope continues to rise and he's actually having a fair bit of discomfort? And ultimately, we felt we felt uncomfortable not giving him something that was likely to provide him some relief. So we started him on prednisone and colchicine, and he actually improved rapidly overnight and tapered off of treatment as an outpatient. Uh, His echoes were again reviewed, and he was followed as an outpatient, and it was still felt to be a congenital mass, although on at least one of his outpatient echoes, it was the one that was done a month after his discharge from hospital, the mobile mass actually appeared to be smaller, <laughs> which I cannot explain. And I, I don't know what that means for our initial diagnosis in this case. What do you guys think?
1: I For me, that's like non-contributory, that piece of information. Having done <clears throat> like a, a bit of echo training, you, it's like, you know, you never step in the same river twice. You never examine the same heart twice. Like everyone's heart is is different from one exam to the next. The views that you get are different. You know, like recently they've started reporting echoes here saying like so and so's ejection fraction is thirty eight percent. And I say to myself, like thirty eight what does that even mean? Like it's it we need a ballpark estimate, not a precise number. It could be thirty eight percent today, but that doesn't mean it's gonna be thirty eight percent tomorrow. So with that finding, I would say like, yeah, if it completely disappeared, that would be weird. But if it's like a little bit smaller or a little bit bigger, I don't think I would fret.
0: And and what do, what are the rest of you think?
2: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, I'm guessing that you're giving us that echo one month after with no antibiotic treatment in the interim, just the PRED and colchicine. But if nothing else changes in the clinical picture um, and there's no dramatic change, I would agree. I I expect some variation between different ultrasound uh, tests.
3: You know, it's interesting that I I don't disagree. I guess two things I'm wondering about. Number one is... I mean, we order a lot of echoes. It's probably the, mo- the one of the most frequent imaging studies that we do. And I don't think I've ever seen a congenital mm-hmm. abnormality reported. Now, maybe they see it and don't report it because we would run around and do things. So this is pretty unusual. I, I agree with the Steph brothers that um, the most I would do would be to follow this. Um, not knowing what it is, and and I would continue to say, I don't know what it is.
0: Great. So I touched base with this patient a couple days ago, and it sounds like in the interval since he was in hospital, he has had one flare of his IBD, but otherwise he's been doing really well. And the plan is to stay away from five ASA-containing compounds in the care of his inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it sounds like cardiology has essentially ascribed the uh, mass on the cordae to a congenital lesion, uh, and there's no specific ongoing treatment for that, and all of his infectious workup uh, initially in hospital came back and He's living a happy, healthy life right now.
3: Back to the uh, SI joints, has, have they been re-imaged, or has he had any further symptoms?
0: I'm not aware of any re-imaging, but no, he actually hasn't developed any new symptoms to suggest active sacroiliitis. So things have remained stable from that perspective, but you're right that's something that kind of needs to be kept kept on the issues list um, even if they're not doing surveillance imaging, maybe they want to do surveillance physical exam or or even just surveillance history about that
3: and and can I ask you how helpful the physical exam would be in this man <laughs>
0: <laughs> Um, <laughs> so it is a uh, I would say that there are a lot of different opinions on the value of the back exam in general and the spondylitis exam in particular. Um, I'd say that a number of the spondylitis experts that I have talked to feel generally that the specific measurements and special tests of the SI joints have too much interrater variability and have poor performance as a diagnostic test. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of nihilism there about the actual value of those physical exam maneuvers. It's my impression that I am probably, I, I've not, not found them to be particularly helpful unless it's really obvious. But that also might just reflect my poor skill as a, a junior rheumatologist. So um, I, I cannot answer for anyone else. I can say that I do not find it to be a particularly helpful grouping of exams because someone with low back pain of any cause can have a lot of those findings. Convincing, yeah. convincing findings of poor range of motion, tenderness over the SI joint, Faber test positive, Schober's reduced, all the things that we, we typically use in, in the exam. So I, I, I honestly struggle from the philosophy of medicine point of view as to exactly how much weight to give to those exams.
3: Cool. So, would you one final question? Would you follow him radiologically at any, or would you just wait for him to develop symptoms and then come back?
0: I think um, if it was just me and no one was watching what I was up to, uh, I think I would be interested in doing uh, repeat imaging at a year or maybe two years from the time that he was found to see if there's any change at all. Because if he actually does evolve into early ankylosing spondylitis. There is evidence that treatment can actually have an impact on radiographic progression, even though that impact takes years and years to actually be shown. But it might actually prompt me to consider additional imaging like MR and CT may actually tell us about erosive disease, which could be could push someone to treat if there were any symptoms. I think if he always remained asymptomatic, even if his imaging was changing, he would be hard-pressed to one, it would be really hard to get coverage for some of the fancy medications. Um, but two, I think you would be hard-pressed to get that patient to take potentially risky medications to treat no pain. So I think I would, I would follow him. Mix of maybe imaging very periodically or once more and um, uh, history and physical.
1: You're sort of talking out of both sides of your mouth, Danny. You want to image him, but you wouldn't do anything about it unless he developed symptoms.
0: Yeah, I I think right. that what I can offer him if I find that his imaging is advancing is maybe prognostic information. So this is not someone who I'm going to be every six months imaging with whole spine MRI. But I think if I was in his position, I would want to know if there was progressive disease or progression up the spine. So if this evolves out of just isolated sacroiliitis, that actually may have implications for future me. No, it wouldn't make me require treatment today, but it might mean something later on. You're right. I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth.
1: No, no, that was a good save there. That was a really, you, you totally saved it. Now I'm back on board. I'm back on the Danny train.
3: The other thing Thank is you. that it's, it's always interesting to, to uh, revisit some of these issues. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say that we had a grand rounds on sacroiliitis approximately a month ago by Dr. Chan. And I think that i am I was trying to recall after you said this, some of the information that I know I've forgotten. So uh, thanks for the refresher.
0: No problem. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much to everyone who participated in today's case. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you at our next case.